Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and changemaker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and today I'm speaking with Molly Worthen, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's also a freelance journalist. Molly's research focuses on North American religious and intellectual history. Her most recent book, Apostles of Reason, examines American evangelical intellectual life since 1945. A contributing writer to the New York Times, Molly wrote a recent article entitled The Anti-College is on the Rise about the failings of American higher education and rising alternatives to it. Molly, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to speak with you. Um, as we talked about before the interview, I came across your article and then wanted to learn more about you and your work um, because as the parent of four teenagers, the the state of college today is definitely on my mind. Um, so that was a fascinating article, but then I was really pleased to learn more about the breadth of your work. So I'd like to begin by learning a little bit about how you chose your focus. Um, what led you to study North American religious and intellectual history? I suppose as I progressed through university myself, I became really interested in how human beings across time and place make meaning, to use the, the language of your podcast. I love it. I grew up in a, a secular context. I, I did not grow up in a, in a religious home, and yet as I took more and more courses in, in history um, across, you know, around the globe, I, it dawned on me that mm -hmm. for most human beings, uh, religion has been a huge part of how they understand the world, and I wanted to learn more about it. At the same time, I became increasingly aware that religion was this major part of our public conversation mm -hmm. about politics and culture wars and Americans' uh, struggles to really work productively to build a flourishing society. And I got interested in journalism hmm. as a way of learning more about the world myself and having an occasion to talk to interesting people and, and you know, get them to make time for me. But I just felt I didn't quite know enough to mm -hmm. contribute a whole lot to okay. that public conversation. And I needed more time in school, more sure. time to read read the big books, you know, the, the, the <laughs> scriptural authorities and these different traditions and, and learn about their history. And so I actually went to graduate school after some detours to be a religion writer, oh. not really to be an academic. Okay. But I suppose I realized that I have too risk-averse a temperament to be a full-time journalist, <laughs> especially as, you know, in the course of uh, my time in graduate school, the bottom really fell out of the economy of, yeah. uh, of, of the media, you know, newspapers and magazines, and it just wasn't as easy as it once was. Yeah. And I became, I think, a little bit spoiled by the wonderful things about being um, having a perch at a big university and doing journalism from that home. And so that's what I do now. I, I mainly teach courses in North American religious and intellectual history. I dabble in global Christianity also. And I, I, I write these periodic essays about religion and public life, about higher education. And I try always to bring 
some history and, and theology kind of into into the story of current events. I love it. And you have the best of both worlds. You've, you've achieved your goal by but in, in a more comfortable route, which is really cool. Um, I hope so. You know, it's funny that you say this. You know, just this morning I was doing some writing about um, religion, and I, I come from a secular Jewish background, um, spent some time in a more religious community about a decade. Um, and I, I say I was, I'm sort of like a hodgepodge of Jewish denominations at this point, because I really appreciate the ritual and the framework um, and the answers that religion can give you. But I bristle at the expectation that you do things a certain way or that somebody else says, do this now or don't do this or, you know, um, so I, you know, I, and so I look at other religions with envy in a way, like, oh, it would be so easy just to go to church every week, or it would be so easy to just, you know, th- there aren't these dietary laws or whatever. So I wonder what it is about religion that either attracts us or repels us. Have you, have you come up with any, you know, simple answers to that? I, I think it's ever present for sure. I think that conundrum is what fascinates me so much. I certainly have not come up with any kind of grand unifying theory <laughs> to explain why some humans end up in or or stay in, you know, the the rigorous religious community they they have been raised in or find it on their own and why others uh really run in the other direction and, and others are somewhere in between. Uh-huh. I I do believe that as humans we are wired to ask these questions that science and other um, materialist earthly tools just can't answer. Right, uh, right. We're, we're wired to wonder about the void, and there are evolutionary psychologists who will give you all kinds of um, reasons premised on, you know, our, our needs and, and wants as, as cavemen um, to explain that, and mm-hmm. I find those explanations interesting, but I suppose not totally satisfying. And right. I, I think part of my own interest in religion is driven by a, a really sincere envy, frankly, uh-huh. of, of people who have found their spiritual home and have a set of answers yeah. uh, to these to these disturbing questions that, you know, keep us all up at night if we let them creep into our brains. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I am, you know, I, I guess I guess I hope that, you know, one day I sort of find a set of answers that, that satisfy me as well. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm just really interested in learning more about other people's worldviews and trying to guide my students into a, a critical but deeply empathetic view and posture toward people who are coming out of worldviews very different from their own. Yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by um, the universality of religions. You know, and I've been fortunate enough in my work as a journalist and a marketing consultant to travel the world um, with clients and on my own and see different traditions. You know, I've been at the um, Golden Temple in Amritsar and I knew nothing about Sikhism and until then. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and I've, I've been in, I've obviously been in India and I've learned about Hinduism and I've been to Israel and I... Um, I wrote a book a number of years ago about bread and how it, it impacts different communities. And um, that's one of the universal things that we all have. And so there's so much that is similar, you know, and even the structure of ritual or of the day or of the year, there are so many similarities that um, it always saddens me when we're divided by religion, when we have so much in common that we do similarly. I, I think that's right. I think certainly 
certainly we're asking the same questions, and, and this is something that I say to my students at the outset of my uh, course that's kind of an introduction to a religion in the U.S. and Canada and a survey of essentially many of the world world's religions, but in the mm-hmm. context of North America. Mm-hmm. And I say, as different as these faiths are, you know, in their doctrines and their practices, they are all asking the same questions. They're all asking, where did we come from? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Yeah. What do we have to do to get right with the divine? Right. You know, how, how do we explain the unexplainable? At the same time, I am skeptical of uh, those perhaps overzealous ecumenical activists who would like to collapse the significant chasms between Mm -hmm. world religions and say, oh, well, they all boil down to the golden rule, and so why can't we all get along? That's just silly. I mean, they they actually, uh, you know, Islam and and Judaism and Christianity, for example, they have lots in common, but they also differ in substantial ways in how they understand human beings, uh, you know, how they think about, you know, the relationship uh, between the church and um, the, you know, secular government, and of course, the divisions within those communities are often so profound and complicate the picture, too. So I think to understand religion, we have to somehow walk that line of seeing the commonalities while respecting the differences. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, I want to pivot a little bit because you are quite an accomplished writer, and um, I'm pretty impressed with your your list of publications. Um, And I especially enjoyed, as I said earlier, your recent New York Times article about, you know, quote unquote, the anti-college. How did that topic come under your radar? I am uh, employed by a, a fairly mainstream, big research university, mm-hmm. uh, which really, I think, does its best um, to serve all different kinds of communities in, in the state and the country, with also, a, you know, an orientation toward toward uh, global issues as well. But it's a big, old, complicated institution mm-hmm. that, you know, in, in which change of any real significance is, I think, hard to enact mm-hmm. in a in a quick experimental way. Mm-hmm. And there is so much that's frustrating about mm-hmm. higher education. And, and so I was interested, uh, as I started to read more about reform efforts in the landscape of American higher education, I was interested in some of these really brave reformer, experimenter, activists, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. who were kind of striking out on their own yeah. and trying to tackle some of the challenges and problems, the, the uh, you know, astronomical cost of higher education, uh, the failure of so many students to really find ways to ask and answer deep questions about vocation and, and life's purpose in the context of courses that are often so oriented toward, you know, a salary at the sure. end of your degree. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, all the disagreement about the right ways to address these questions. Um, I was interested in exploring uh, these efforts to make progress mm-hmm. on, on, on these challenges in higher education, maybe out, outside of the world of, of mainstream higher ed in which I'm embedded. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I went to the University of Michigan and I graduated in 1993 and it was at a time where um, luckily my parents paid for my education. It was not nearly as expensive uh, in comparable dollars as it is today. And um, it was, it was an opportunity, I think, looking back on it to um, yes, 
become equipped to walk into a career, but really to grow up a little bit intellectually and to have the gift of taking classes and exploring ideas and thought and text. And I think, you know, I sort of came away from that with this assumption that a college education is an opportunity to develop who you are as a young adult. And so you can better choose how you're going to contribute to the world and step out there. Um, but at the cost that we're seeing today, you know, I'm wondering if that's still true. And and you said in your article um, that professors like you have the job of, and I'm quoting here, leading students in a survey of how civilization's greatest minds wrestled with philosophical problems, which is how I definitely saw my college experience um, and the role of higher education. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's no longer the role or um, if it's just become a luxury because of the cost associated with it, you know, what do you see as today the role of higher education? I think the the failure of universities to really foreground the essential questions about life's purpose and helping students, you know, think in a in a in a big deep way about their their place in the big picture, that that problem is connected to, but quite distinct from the problem of the rising cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the rising cost, I think, to, to disentangle that um, is, is, is not an easy thing. I mean, you know, there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. And in the context of public higher education, uh, the sphere that I'm in, I mean, it has something to do with um, the trend since the 1980s uh, in uh, state governments really across the country mm-hmm. to defund public education and really encourage universities like the University of Michigan, for yeah. example, yeah. to basically become private institutions oh, yeah. to uh, gain a, you know, a greater and greater amount of their, uh, their funding and, and support you know, more and more of their budget through private fundraising by ra- raising tuition on uh, primarily out of state and often international students. Right. right. Uh, there are some exceptions to that. You know, my my university UNC is actually uh, because of the way the North Carolina state uh, laws are written, it, it can't make that move. That has been very common in the uh, University of California system and some of the other um, elite public systems. Mm-hmm. But we we pay a real cost for that. I mean, we are um, we're really I think struggling in a way that um, schools like University of Michigan and University of Virginia that have had more leeway to privatize um, are not. Uh, so we're still relatively affordable, but it's sure. not really a sustainable model. And and I think a lot of what people read about the ballooning administrative infrastructure and the, the arms race to offer students nicer and nicer amenities, I mean, there is a lot to that. Sure. And it's to the detriment of investment in classrooms and in uh, faculty who are, you know, tenured and given permanent um, positions to really dig in and invest in the institution and the students, uh, that's not where the money's going, yeah. uh, by and large. The money's going elsewhere. Hmm. Uh, I think a, a related trend, which is uh, quite uh, intimately connected to the problem you mentioned, this, mm-hmm. and the problem that preoccupied me in that article, this, uh, this abandonment of um, kind of the, you know, the philosophical inquiry part of higher education, yeah. uh, is, the, is the vocationalization I'll say, sure, of sure. Uh, mainstream universities. So, you know, uh, probably, you know, in the, in the early 90s when you were in school, you know, at a place like Michigan, there were certainly some majors and departments that were very much oriented toward practical skills, you know, journalism or um, engineering. But uh, those kinds of programs have totally mushroomed huh. in the years 
since then. Um, so, and they are, they siphon students away from sure. uh, courses in philosophy or literature or, or history. And this, I guess, brings us circling back to the, the money question, because why is it that students feel such pressure to take those quote-unquote practical classes yeah. and, you know, leave aside the classes that may foster the big question asking? Right. It's because they've gone into such debt. Right. And, right. You know, to get this education, of course, you know, they feel this pressure. Their parents are probably pressuring them to make sure you have some real skills. I think they're often misled about which classes lead to earning potential. Um, yeah. You know, certainly the data that's been collected on the fate of, say, English majors or history majors or philosophy majors really contradicts this idea that a uh, traditional liberal arts education doesn't equip you to do anything. Because right. it turns out, and I hear this all the time from uh, friends of mine in other professions, you know, in the business world, in law firms, or during the hiring, yeah. it turns out that the most valuable skills are not, you know, have you mastered this most recent version of a trendy software, <laughs> but rather, can you write? Yes. Can you yeah. can you think in a straight line? Yes. Can you pull ideas together? Can you find evidence and make sense of it and communicate it to other people? Right. Where do you learn those things? You learn them in, you know, the humanities classes primarily. I do think, too, that the humanities courses have sort of suffered a crisis of confidence, though, and they've, sure. they, they've contributed to this abandonment of, mm. of the big questions and the big books. Well, and if we're not asking the big questions, um, we, we don't develop depth and we don't develop perspective, which helps us with innovation, with help, which helps us with advancement and, you know, um, all kinds of things. I, you know, I, I, it saddens me a bit because... I do think that by not having that opportunity to just wander and explore and ask um, and debate, we're really missing out on something very deep in our intellectual landscape. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm having conversations with my kids. I have four teenagers at home about how um, it doesn't, I keep saying it doesn't matter where you go to college, it's what you do with it. And I hope I'm not misleading them, you know, but I also don't want them coming out of undergrad with a six figure debt on their shoulders. And of course, you know, when I grew up, you, you went to the best university you could get into and it was a mark of pride. And and today, it's it's more of a dollars and cents question for a lot of kids. It's, you know, really, who's going to give me the most in scholarships? Where will I have the least debt from? And it's a pragmatic conversation. So the dreaminess, I think, of of that time of life is, is dissipating a little bit, unfortunately. I think that's right. I mean, I think the advice you give your kids is, is bang on in that at the vast majority of um, mainstream colleges and universities, if you know where to look, you can find the the great classes sure. and the wonderful mentors who will give you, you know, a first-rate uh, education and 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 guide you through those big questions and suggest books for you to read and and really work with you on your writing. But the vast majority of eighteen-year-olds are just not equipped to do that on their own. Right. Uh, they don't know who to ask for advice. They don't even know what they're looking for. You know, so it's it's an unreasonable expectation. And I think that that's part of what motivated some of the reformers that I uh, spoke to for my article is a sense that, you know, pe young people need a little more guidance. Oh, um, yes. And, and yes. these were all um, kind of programs or, or short degrees. None, none were four-year complete uh, bachelor's programs, at mm -hmm. least not yet, mm -hmm. um, that that sort of offered students a you know a, a boot camp yeah. in 
life philosophy. And I think are marketing themselves as uh, an addition, an addendum, a a supplement to a more conventional Hmm. bachelor's degree. It's interesting because I do think, you know, we talk on the show about meaning and purpose. And I know a lot of people in midlife who are who are questioning that, you know, how am I doing something meaningful? How am I contributing to the greater good? You know, what's my purpose? Because at midlife, we can have those existential conversations. Um, But I do think that there is that dreaminess that I mentioned earlier is so important that comes earlier in life when you, you the sky is the limit and you believe you can do anything. So you try and well, you know, well, you can. Um, it's. I think that's really important. And I, I just think that time and space and experience give us that. And without that, where do we end up, you know? Right. It's kind of a version of the, the old cliche that youth is wasted on the young. Yes. You know, that uh, now if you could only go back and do your education over again, you know exactly what classes you'd take and you wouldn't waste any time, you know, at parties, you would, you know, dig into your papers. Um, but of course, we can't, we can't go back and live that way. So the question is, how do we, how do we create a, an educational experience that, you know, is not naive about the, the life position of uh, the average college student and in fact makes the most of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, as we are near the end of our conversation, I do want to ask you um, to give a little bit of your advice to our listeners about this question of contribution and meaning, you know, um, it, you know, I love the story of your journey because you just sort of stumbled into a profession based on your curiosity and your yearning. Um, so what would you tell our listeners about how they find their purpose or their path? I think a lot of young people today feel pressure to find their passion. You know, that's mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. A, a cliche we hear a lot about. Just, you know, figure out what you're passionate about and get good at it and the rewards will come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a lovely slogan, but, you know, it, it can be very daunting for the average young person. I mean, I still am not really sure what my passion is. I, I know I've got a few things I do that I really enjoy that, yeah. at least on my good days, I think are, you know, reasonably valuable valuable contributions to civilization, but uh-huh. am I confident that they are the only way I could have lived a fulfilling life? Absolutely not. Do I have doubts about them once in a while? Of course. Yeah. So I think that it's more important to just identify some some questions you have, some things you're curious about, some people you'd like to spend time with and pursue that. And mm-hmm. the passion follows. I was struck uh, by, you know, some of the patterns I detected among these educational reform efforts. Uh Um, Many of them were really uh, devoted to plugging students into a local community. Huh. Uh, one called Outer Coast is um, based in Sitka, Alaska, and has a special mission to, to serve um, underserved Indigenous Alaskans as well as um, you know bringing some people into the state to to really get to know it. And and students are are really um, compelled to develop relationships with the community and find ways to serve the community and learn about you know uh, Indigenous poetry alongside kind of more traditional Western canon readings. Interesting. Um, another another program, the RITA Project, uh, plants students both. Um, there's two programs, one in Alaska and one in the Western Mountains of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar kind of impulse to dig into your local place. Uh-huh. Another called the Wayfinding Academy um, is based in Portland. And um, encourages students to, you know, complement their studies by getting out into the Portland community and working through internships and kind of project-based learning where they are. And I'm really struck 
by the way, you know, even in this kind of postmodern globalized world in which we are urging students to, you know, ignore boundaries and study abroad and, and, and travel widely and be cosmopolitan global citizens, there's still this abiding human hunger to be just rooted in a place and, and understand the kinds of questions and relationships that are, that are possible if you just stay put for a little while and commit to a place. And, you know, that's one way of looking at this question of meaning-making, at least in, in kind of a short-term way, um, that, that says, you know, maybe if you just accept where you are and open your eyes to what you have to gain from this place, you can cover a lot of ground. That's a beautiful way to look at things, you know, is to really see the beauty where you are as opposed to looking for something else. Um, that that sense of rootedness and context and community. I'm hearing you talk about community too. Um, the human connection is so much about how we cultivate wisdom and and find that meaning and purpose and um, in life and in work. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Well, Molly Worthen, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. I'm so impressed by your work and I look forward to reading more. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you would share our great conversations with your people so we can all add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do. 